But now is the time to turn the page and begin the next leg of our journey. CPS CEO Janice Jackson is resigning. This job has been everything I dreamt of and sometimes a little bit more than that. <laughs> you were all there. And office landlords roll out perks in the fight for tenants. Crane's commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker joins me today with more. One creative one I, I heard from someone out there was um, the idea of, of actually mitigating future hikes in property taxes. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, May 4th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. You and I have talked a lot about commercial tenants and landlords over the last year. There's a lot to be said there, but you've recently written about some of the perks that landlords are offering and what is the latest in all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great time to be looking for office space downtown and it's a challenging one to be a landlord uh, downtown. And so, you know, now we are finally, after months and months of planning and thinking about how much space we need and you know, these companies saying, okay, when are we going to return to the office? We're starting to see deals get signed now. I mean, we've had in the last month more activity in terms of real leases getting done than we had, you know, probably in the six to eight months prior. Um, so there's decisions being made again. And that means that it's time now for landlords to say, okay, what can we offer? We've been thinking about how our strategy is going to play out here. It's going to a lot more competitive. We have record high vacancy downtown. There's all kinds of subleases available that we have to compete with now. So what can we do to entice companies to sign on now? And especially because a lot of companies, while they may feel like they know when they want to go back to the office and how much space they need, there's still a lot of uncertainty about, you know, are we, uh, what's the new rhythm going to be for our office use? So landlords are trying now to, you know, use some of the standard perks and incentives they always have, like uh, cash for office buildouts and, you know, allowing a certain amount of free rent, uh, but also really creative uh, solutions to address this idea of flexibility that tenants want. They want, they need to get tenants to feel comfortable, companies to start feeling comfortable with, all right, here's, sign on with me now, sign on for five, seven years, whatever the case may be. We're going to build in some, some parts to this lease that are going to make you say, well, look, even if we guessed wrong right now, a year from now, we feel like we had too much or not enough space. We're going to, we're going to make it right for you. That That's kind of what the goal is right now for landlords. And there's a lot of creative ways that's being done. And in your reporting, what stood out to you as some of the more extreme tactics that, that landlords are using to attract tenants? You know, I talked to a lot of different, probably, I don't know, seven or eight different um, tenant reps, you know, people who represent major uh, companies that have looked for space downtown, they're talking about all kinds of great deals and examples they're seeing out there. And you also talk to, I, I'll talk to some leasing brokers who are very quick to point out that they're saying, look, yeah, those deals are out there for sure. It's time to be aggressive. But they also come with a caveat that, you know, it's not just any tenant 
that is going to get a really good deal. You know, they're looking for uh, tenants that have companies that have really good credit and are willing to uh, make a long-term commitment to space. Um, those are very coveted and you're going to see landlords uh, bend over backwards. But, you know, some of the more rare things that you're seeing, things that you just would never have seen before or very rarely seen before, um, you know, uh, just just there's there's things like a, a look back provision is one thing that, you know, would say effectively just have a, uh, a lease where, you know, a, a, a company would sign on. We're saying, OK, we're going to pay this much. But if over the next two years or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, similar buildings see their rents fall, we're going to, after two years, get to reduce our rent um, just to be able to, you know, get to, to kind of mark to market effectively what, what they're doing. Um, you're seeing, you know, the consideration of, uh, of smaller security deposits, basically reducing the amount of cash or collateral a company would have to put up in case of a lease default. Uh, one creative one I, I heard from someone out there was um, the idea of, of actually mitigating future hikes in property taxes, because this has been a big pain point for companies, potential pain point, as the city is uh, is this year getting its first uh, reassessment under Cook County Assessor Fritz Kagey that's expected to increase commercial property taxes. And at office buildings, landlords pass those directly to tenants normally. So landlords are saying, look, we're going to basically set aside a pot of money that if our property taxes go up by more than X, you know, then we will pick up that extra amount just to kind of give the tenant a, a sense of certainty. Um, so those are the types of things we're seeing, you know, more uh, options being built into leases for terminations or, you know, expansion or contractions or, you know, uh, another other landlords that are saying, hey, we're going to hold off marketing other space in the building and we're just going to leave it there for a year or two just to give you that you know, runway if you sign on with us so that if you can either take more space uh, or, you know, and you're going to know what space you're going to get just to give that that uh, company a sense of uh, that flexibility again. So there's that. And then, of course, there's just more cash being handed out for office build outs and more free rent. You know, I heard a number of different tenant reps say, um, you know, where you uh, whereas a company that would have signed on for a 10 year lease might have gotten uh, one year of free rent. Uh, now it might be 18 months or more, you know, um, and, and the other idea is that we're seeing a lot of companies offer what they call beneficial occupancy, where they say, OK, your lease at your other building doesn't expire for two years. Why don't you move into our building now? Don't pay us any rent until your lease new lease actually starts with, with us in 2023 or whatever the case may be. And then on top of that, once your lease actually does start, you're still going to get that free rent, you know, 12, 18 months. So it's it's a lot of maneuvering to try to say, hey, tenant, we want you here. Move in here. We have a great office space uh, and and we're going to make it worth your while so you can you know, feel comfortable for a few years and not be paying rent for space that you may or may not need when you realize six months from now, uh, you know, hey, we really actually took on more than we needed. And this level of flexibility that you're describing, it sounds pretty remarkable. Can you think of any other time where tenants would have seen anywhere near this level of flexibility? I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's it's the thing. There's there's so many different ups and downs and cycles in the market for decades. And so there's always times where it's either a tenant's market or a landlord's market. But, you know, to be in such a weird moment in time where, you know, there's generally a consensus that people need offices, need and want office space again, and they're going to come back to offices, but they don't really know exactly when they don't really know how they're going to use their office 
on a weekly basis moving forward. And they certainly don't know exactly how much space they're going to need to meet those those needs. So there's so many variables. And if you're a landlord, how do you solve for that, right? I mean, how do you build into what you're offering and market you know, yourself, your building in a way that is going to make a, a prospective tenant feel comfortable about that? Because it's just, it's a weird limbo period. And it's not like it's going to immediately flip a switch for companies to say, Yep. All right. Now we know how much we need. It's going to be a, it's going to be a big adjustment. I mean, we, the the most common, you know, thing you hear from, from especially leasing brokers is you hear, well, you know, look what happened after 9-11, you know, where people said they were never going to work in, in skyscrapers again. And there was a lull and then it came back and, you know, it, it was, and it was just like it was before. Well, you know, now we've had this thing where people have adjusted to the new way of working for more than a year. So, it's going to be another a big adjustment if things are going to go back to close to what they were like before. And it's going to take some time before companies really know what they what they need. So it, it, there's not really a, a good thing to point to or a moment or an era to point to, in my opinion, um, uh, of the last 30, 40 years to be able to say, yeah, this this was kind of like this. It was kind of like when this happened. No, it's not. I mean, it's a it's a Wild West, whole new world coming out of this thing. And uh, you know, it, it's just going to be, uh, it, you know, some of these landlords are saying, well, we have to be aggressive or else if we, if we sit on our hands, we're going to lose and we're going to lose big. And so, you know, you just see a lot of, uh, out of the box thinking right now. And could any of these concessions that landlords are making for tenants now, could any of them come back and bite them later? Well, you know, it's a good question. I think that, you know, another thing that, that leasing brokers will point out is, you know, it's hard to paint these landlords with a with a broad brush because you've got some landlords that are long-term holders. They aren't intending to sell their buildings in the next two or three years, or they weren't intending to sell them, you know, in 2020 when they obviously couldn't. Um, and, and and so they might not be, they might not feel the, the need or the they might not feel the urgency to, you know, shell out a bunch of extra cash and free rent just to be able to sign on a company that, um, is going to commit for a long term at a really strong rental rate because that, I mean that's also the last thing that that these landlords want to do is reduce their the, the rates they're going to charge for rent. I mean that's something that I guess as the saying goes from different tenant reps I've talked to, it's how much do I have to pay you to get you to you know pay this rent? Uh, it's 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 here are the concessions that we need to roll out so that you're going to agree to it because if you reduce rent, then when you go to sell your building it's a direct impact on the value of, of what an investor might pay. So, so when it comes to the concessions, I think that it's, if you have a, 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 an owner that's got some pretty deep pockets and can say, look, we're, yeah, if we shell out extra cash, we might be eating away at, you know, what we're going to net from this building when we sell it one day or when we refinance. But again, I think some of them just say, well, look, we, we need to come up with the right mix of things. It might not all just be, offering free rent and cash, we can build in some things to, and, and even design our buildings and, and, and some offices in certain ways. That was another thing that we addressed in the story was, you know, you see some landlords out there saying, okay, yeah, we're going to offer some concessions, but let's be really thoughtful about building out some office space, spec suite space, as it's called, it's move-in ready space, and let's build it out in ways that can be more or less dense, um, you know, or, or, you know, design it in a way that it can be, have different uses, you know, where there's, we use this example in the story of 500 West Madison, where the owner has built out uh, quite a few spec suites 
and they're really nice and they're, they're basically you're spending your money up front to get a, a company to move in and say hey it's move in ready you don't have to put up any of your own cash to build it out and they're saying look we can we can maneuver um, um, a lot of different ways there's move more movable walls and things to be able to use you know conferencing spaces conferencing space or a lounge or just a, a, a other use uh, type of space in an office so trying to just be thoughtful in ways that they can entice tenants to to sign on and I don't think that um, you have too many landlords who are saying, well, look, we're, we're just going to sit here and do nothing and wait this out because it's gonna, it could be a long wait. And so some of them just have to say, well, we're going to put money up. We're going to invest in this. We believe in it. And companies are going to sign. And uh, ultimately, we're going to get back on solid footing. All right, Danny Ecker, thanks so much. Always appreciate you taking the time to break things down for us. Thanks, Amy. Coming up in today's top stories, a look at new Chicago restaurants with buzz and big chef names behind them. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. I have lived my entire life and served this district for 22 years. I've given my all to our students, and in return, I've received far more. CPS CEO Janice Jackson is resigning. A.D. Quigg is reporting the story in detail for Crane's. Chicago Public Schools CEO Dr. Janice Jackson is leaving the nation's third largest school district. Jackson has been at the helm of CPS since 2017. She will exit when her contract expires in June. To Mayor Lightfoot, I want to give you a hearty thank you for trusting me, empowering me, and embracing the vision that I have for Chicago Public Schools. You did not have to do that, yet you did. She was first tapped to take over the district by Mayor Rahm Emanuel and was seen as a stabilizing force in CPS. Throughout everything that we've done, we have had equity at the forefront. In my prior role as a chief education officer, we tackled one of the district's longstanding challenges, access to selective enrollment schools and choice options by building a universal application for applying to schools. Two of its last CEOs stepped down amid scandal. But it sets the district up for a leadership vacuum. Chief Education Officer Latanya McDade and Chief Operating Officer Arnie Rivera also announced they're leaving. The district has had a difficult run in recent years between the lengthy 2019 teacher strike and tense negotiations over the return of in-person learning. Politically, the district is also seeing shifting stakes. The Chicago Teachers Union recently won back significant bargaining powers it lost in 1995. And there is a battle brewing in Springfield over an elected school board. CTU is pushing for a fully elected board, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot is pushing to maintain some of her appointments. I am personally energized and ready to roll up my sleeves to set the next CEO and leadership team up for success. Jackson's departure is also happening amid changing stakes for the CTU, which won back major bargaining power during the lame duck session in Springfield and are pushing hard to replace Chicago's current mayoral appointed school board to an elected one. 
More than a dozen base camp workers announced on social media that they're leaving the Chicago tech company just four days after management banned political conversation on its internal software platform. Among those who took voluntary buyouts include the heads of design, marketing, and customer support. CEO Jason Fried's decision last week to ban what was described as, quote, societal and political discussions sparked a backlash, especially after revelations by The Verge that the decision sprung from a list mocking customer names. Names, many of them ethnic. John Pletz has the story in detail for Cranes. Basecamp had a high profile for being a relatively small company, thanks in part to the book Rework, which was written by its co-founders. That also means it lives life in an unusually intense spotlight. So when the backlash to its new policy started to grow, Basecamp attracted a lot of attention. As an early proponent of remote working, Basecamp positioned itself as a forward-thinking company. That reputation appears to have taken a hit. Basecamp had about 60 workers and at least 14 announced on Twitter that they're leaving. Co-founder David Heinemeyer Hansen said in a blog post that the company offered buyouts to all workers on Tuesday. Severance of up to six months salary for those who've been with the company over three years and three months salary for those at the company less than that. Adding, no hard feelings, no questions asked. For those who cannot see a future at Basecamp under this new direction, we'll help them in every which way we can to land somewhere else. CVS and Walgreens, both national pharmacy chains that the federal government entrusted to inoculate people against COVID-19, account for the majority of wasted vaccine doses, according to government data obtained by Kaiser Health News, which reported that the CDC recorded more than 182,000 wasted doses as of late March, three months into the country's effort to vaccinate as many people as possible against the coronavirus. Of those, CVS was responsible for nearly half and Walgreens for 21 It's not completely clear from the CDC data why the two chains wasted more than states and federal agencies. Some critics have pointed to poor planning early in the rollout when the Trump administration leaned heavily on CVS and Walgreens to vaccinate residents and staff members of long-term care facilities. Walgreens didn't specify, but in response to questions, CVS said that nearly all of its reported vaccine waste occurred during that time. And a company spokesperson cited issues including, quote, issues with transportation restrictions, limitations on redirecting unused doses, and other factors. Walgreens said that its wasted doses amounted to less than 0.5% of vaccines the company administered through March 29th, which totaled 3 million shots in long-term care facilities and 5.2 million more through the federal government's retail pharmacy partnership. The Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines, which come in multi-dose vials, are fragile and have limited shelf lives, and overall, waste has been at a minimum. As of March 30th, the U.S. had delivered roughly 189 0.5 million vaccine doses and administered 147.6 million, according to the CDC. A CDC spokesperson said that because the retail pharmacy companies were tasked with administering a large number of doses, quote, the higher percentage of overall wastage would not be unexpected, particularly in an early vaccination effort that spanned thousands of locations. The pandemic dampened restaurant openings, but it did not extinguish them entirely. Some, in fact, welcomed their first guests with limited menus, takeout-only options, or cold-weather patios. In any case, there are some notable new restaurants with pedigreed chefs that you might have missed. Ali Moradi is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. 
In 2020, 184 restaurants opened in Chicago, compared with 262 in 2019, according to restaurantdata.com. And so far this year, 86 have opened already. It hasn't been easy. A lot of these restaurants welcome their first guests with limited menus, takeout only options, or cold weather patios. But now operators are starting to see reservation slots fill up fast. There's Rosemary in the West Loop, an Adriatic restaurant from Michelin-starred chef Joe Flom, which is booking out a couple months in advance at this point. Another new restaurant, Ever, which is fine dining, just won two Michelin stars, so expect that one to be busy as well. Other new restaurants include Andros Taverna in Logan Square, it's a Greek restaurant, Apollonia in the South Loop, which opened in mid-April in a newly constructed space serving coastal European and Mediterranean food, and a slew of others as well. Find the full list of restaurants at chicagobusiness.com. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.